Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Supreme Court hands down the most significant ruling on gun rights in over a decade, overturning a New York state law. And Governor Kathy Hochul isn't happy about the decision. I'm prepared to call the legislature back into session to deal with this. The highest court in the land isn't the only body dealing with gun issues. Congress is on track to pass a gun control bill that's got some Republican support. We're considering a bipartisan bill that will make our country safer without making it any less free. An overhaul of Title IX on its 50th anniversary. What is the Biden administration seeking to change? And why do Republicans say it'll devastate women's sports? A major supermarket chain based in Florida won't be offering COVID-19 vaccines to children under five. Governor Ron DeSantis's office has recommended against vaccinating babies. A video shows a veteran getting choked and body slammed inside a VA clinic. What led to the attack? We'll give you the details. The nephew of former NFL greats Peyton and Eli Manning has made his long-awaited decision. Find out which powerhouse school he's committed to attend. And a major win for Second Amendment rights. The Supreme Court justices struck down New York State's restrictions on carrying concealed handguns in public. This could have implications on a national level. Here are the details. The Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to three on Thursday that New York State's system on concealed carry is unconstitutional. This is the most significant gun rights ruling handed down by the high court in over a decade. The gun law in New York has been in place for over a century. It requires people to show a proper cause for carrying concealed handguns in public in order to get permission from the state. A proper cause has to be a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. New York grants concealed carry licenses more freely in rural areas than in New York City, and the license doesn't apply to the entire state. Two firearms owners and the New York affiliate of the National Rifle Association challenged the law. The justices sided with them. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in a majority opinion, the New York law prevented law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms in public. Because the state of New York issues public carry licenses only when an applicant demonstrates a special need for self-defense, we conclude that the state's licensing regime violates the Constitution. Republican Senator John Kennedy tells NTD that he agrees with the Supreme Court opinion. Basically, the Supreme Court said, look, we're not kidding. The Bill of Rights is not an a la carte menu. Uh, the Bill of Rights includes the Second Amendment, your right to own a gun uh, for any reason but to, uh, to protect your person and your property. Meanwhile, Democratic Senator Chris Coons tells NTD that he's concerned about the direction the Supreme Court is going. Um, it shows that we have an activist conservative majority on the court that is willing to create new standards, new approaches, um, and I don't think that gun safety laws threaten fundamental Second Amendment rights in the way that, um, at least based on what I was briefly told Justice Thomas's opinion suggests. Justices Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan dissented. The opinion reads, many states have tried to address some of the dangers of gun violence just described by passing laws that limit in various ways who may purchase, carry, or use firearms of different kinds. The court today severely burdens states' efforts to do so. Reacting to the ruling, New York Governor Kathy Hochul says she is prepared to call the state legislature back into session and pass new gun laws. Our new laws are going to be looking at restrictions on sensitive locations, changing the permitting process, creating a threshold for those. We're going to have training requirements. We're going to make sure that people have concealed weapons as specified training. Half a dozen states have gun restrictions similar to the one in New York. They include California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. The Supreme Court ruling means that similar restrictions could be impacted in those states as well. In a survey by the Trafalgar Group earlier this month, over 50% of Americans said they believe the most important right that the Second Amendment protects is the right to self-defense. Only 15% said they don't believe the Second Amendment protects any rights they are concerned about. 
Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. President Biden today called the Supreme Court ruling a bad decision. He says he believes it's not reasoned accurately and that he's disappointed. And the Senate is on track to pass a new gun bill to impose restrictions on guns. Republicans joined Democrats today to overcome a filibuster, speeding up the process in Congress. So I urge my Republican colleagues, let's get this bill passed and pass it today. We're considering a bipartisan bill that will make our country safer without making it any less free. This is the sweet spot, Madam President, making America safer, especially for kids in school, without making our country one bit less free. Today, 15 Republicans voted with Democrats to overcome a filibuster, speeding up the final passage of the gun bill. It will invest around $800 million to incentivize states to implement or strengthen red flag laws. These are laws that allow authorities to take guns away from people who are a risk to themselves or others. The Senate bill will also invest in mental health programs and expand background checks for buyers under 21 years old. Republicans who support the bill defend their vote, arguing that it keeps the Second Amendment intact. But this Republican cooperation has drawn backlash from other Republicans who say it's only the first step to eroding a fundamental constitutional right. The Senate is on track to pass the bill tonight or tomorrow, then it's off to the House. And the Biden administration today seeks to expand Title IX's protections to include gender identity. This as GOP lawmakers fire back, citing fairness in women's sports. NTD's Iris Tao has more. It's the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which outlaws discrimination based on sex in schools and colleges. Millions of girls have grown up able to play sports. But as the day is celebrated, the Biden administration is seeking to modify the law's language and sweep gender identity into its protection. The Department of Education wrote in the Thursday statement the proposed changes would, quote, strengthen protections for LGBTQI plus students by clarifying that Title IX's protections against discrimination based on sex apply to discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Some are echoing the idea, citing a need to expand equity. But especially those who have been left behind by the law, including girls of color, girls with disabilities, trans athletes, and all LGBTQ plus youth. But it's also getting pushback. But this is discrimination against women, plain and simple. Republicans say the changes would further allow transgender people to compete in women's sports, disadvantaging female athletes. Allowing athletes to self-identify into a gender category erodes the gains that women have made over the past 50 years, and it ignores the biological differences between male and female athletes. And Senator Cynthia Lummis tells NTD that she believes transgender people should have their own competition category. So they can still compete, but they're not competing at an advantage that disadvantages women from getting scholarships to go to college. Biden's proposal now faces a public feedback period before the administration can finalize any changes. Meanwhile, the Department of Education says more specific rules regarding transgender students competing in school sports will be released later. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And staying with transgender issues, the White House announced last week that President Biden would soon sign an executive order that will come down on so-called conversion therapy especially for children with gender dysphoria. The administration's statement casts the practices discredited and dangerous and suggested that children who go through this kind of therapy are more likely to attempt suicide. Earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Miriam Grossman, who's been a practicing child and adolescent psychiatrist for nearly 40 years. Miriam, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Now, Biden is coming down on conversion therapy. Could you please explain what it is in simple terms? Sure. Uh, regarding gender identity, meaning 
the feeling, uh, the perception, the belief of being a boy or a girl or male or female. Um, conversion therapy would be therapy that explores with the patient or with the client why it is that they so much would like to be another person, why it is that they feel that they are or would so much like to be the opposite sex. And the goal of that therapy would be to uh, help the patient get to a place where they understand where the distress comes from and they accept their biology and they accept their body. The White House says that conversion therapy raises the risk of attempted suicide. Is that what the studies show? No. The studies show that uh, kids who are struggling with their gender identity do have an elevated risk of suicide, but no higher than any other group of kids that, with mental health problems. And I want to remind you and your listeners that typically the kids that that are involved with questioning their gender uh, are kids that have pre-existing uh, emotional or psychiatric disorders. Um, they may be on the autistic spectrum or have an anxiety disorder, a depressive disorder, or any number of, of other conditions. So to begin with, they have an elevated risk of suicide, which anyway, uh, even, even among all children who have psychiatric disorders, the risk of suicide is, is quite low. It's, it's, it's very low. Um, and furthermore, the kids who, uh, who undergo uh, puberty blockers and hormones in order to transition them, so-called transition them into the other sex, um, they, there is no change in their suicidal rates. So we don't have evidence that these um, drastic medical interventions actually helps with the mental health of these kids in the long term. What kinds of intervention do you think could truly help suicidal dysphoric, gender dysphoric children? Well, just like with, with any child that's having emotional distress, what helps is to sit down with them and their family and to get to know them and explore what is going on in their lives at home, at school, um, in the, you know, elsewhere in their lives, in their inner life, what sort of trauma they may have gone through, what sort of losses they've gone through. You have to do all of that in order to truly come up with, um, with, a, with a diagnosis, a differential diagnosis, and uh, and then you and then you start to do the hard work of uncovering where the distress comes from and addressing all of that. Also, a big part of it is education. You need to educate the child and the family or the adolescent um, about gender gender identity and about the medical treatments that exist, what they do, what they don't do. Um, they do not solve all the child's problems. Um, they often just delay looking at those issues. And they can cause a lot of medical problems, infertility, obviously, sexual dysfunction, and a long list of medical problems. Transgenderism is on the rise in adolescence, and especially teenage girls. What do you think is driving this phenomenon? Well, this is most likely a psychic epidemic. So it, it's, in other words, a social contagion, meaning that um, young people, especially girls, are, um, are identifying as uh, either transgender or non-binary or one of the other many other choices that they have. Um, and they're doing it in clusters. They're doing it together with their friends. Uh, they, they, they hear about it either in their friend group or online or from some other place. And they, uh, they, they learn, they mistakenly are convinced that this is going to be the answer to their problems, that this is going to be the answer to their 
discomfort with their bodies, which as you know, and every adult knows that almost everybody has discomfort with their bodies in adolescence and a child with gender dysphoria, that's gonna be times a thousand. So I'm not minimizing the distress that these kids have, but to lead them to believe and to leave their parents to believe that blockers and hormones and surgeries are going to address that distress, that is, that is not accurate. That is wrong. Dr. Marion Grossman, child and adolescent psychiatrist, thank you so much. You're welcome. And in public health news, Publix, a major supermarket chain based in Florida, says it will not provide COVID-19 vaccines for children under the age of five. The FDA recently authorized the vaccine for children in that age group. Publix told the Tampa Bay Times that the company will not be providing an explanation for the decision. The supermarket chain says it is still providing the COVID vaccine to children over five, but not to those between six months and four years old at this time. This comes as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' administration said it will not be ordering COVID vaccines for children under five. The DeSantis administration also recommends against vaccinating babies. Parents who want the vaccines for young kids can still get them from healthcare providers. And more in health news, Juul products are being pulled off shelves in the U.S. The FDA just made the call about the company's vape products today. And if Juul doesn't stop distributing or selling its pens and pods, the FDA says it may step in to enforce the order. Federal health officials say the decision was based on Juul's application to market its products, explaining they didn't see enough evidence the company could market its vape products in a way that would protect public health. Juul got a lot of attention after it was criticized for selling flavored vape products that were popular with teens. The company stopped selling them in 2019, shortly before the FDA banned them altogether. And now to a shocking video, which shows a VA clinic worker body slamming a 73-year-old Vietnam veteran. The altercation appears to have started after the vet waved papers in the employee's face. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. In a surveillance video recently obtained by WSB-TV, 73-year-old Philip Webb is waiting to discuss scheduling a hernia surgery while at a VA clinic in Atlanta. The Vietnam vet told WSB-TV that he knocked on the door to let someone know he was going to leave to use the restroom. VA employee Lawrence F. Gaillard Jr. walked out and Webb waved papers in his face. When Gaillard pointed his finger in Webb's face, Webb tried to swat it away, and then this happened. Gaillard slammed Webb into the wall, choked him, and then body slammed him, and then he kicked Webb in the back of the head. And before Gaillard walked away, he kicked him in the head one more time. Webb was hospitalized for three days with a brain bleed. According to Military.com, Gaillard was initially charged with felony assault by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern District of Georgia and the case was later transferred to the Fulton County District Attorney's Office because of jurisdiction issues. The press secretary for the Department of Veterans Affairs, Terrence Hayes, told Task and Purpose, we are horrified at the video of a VA employee assaulting a veteran at the Atlanta VA healthcare system on April 28th. This disturbing behavior is contrary to our core values of treating veterans with the dignity and respect they deserve. Hayes also added that Gaillard was suspended from the VA without pay and that he couldn't comment further because the matter is still under investigation. Jason Perry, NTD News. Truly shocking. Coming up, New York City will start offering the monkeypox vaccine to eligible people who may have been exposed to the virus. The city represents nearly 20% of all cases diagnosed nationwide. And convicted serial killer Richard Cottingham has been charged in the murder of Long Island mother Diane Cusick. The cold case had gone unsolved for more than 50 years. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News.
Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. The New York City Health Department announced today that it is opening a temporary clinic to vaccinate people who might have had recent exposure to monkeypox. The department said in a statement that most monkeypox cases are currently found in men who have sex with men. But it noted that anyone can get and spread the disease. The new vaccine clinic is open to all gay, bisexual and other men who have sex with men. Patients must be 18 or older and have had multiple or anonymous sex partners during the last 14 days. Mayor Eric Adams said the new clinic is, quote, one more critical tool to keep New Yorkers healthy. According to the department, getting vaccinated soon after exposure reduces the risk of developing the disease and can reduce the symptoms in those who do get infected. In total, New York City represents close to 20% of all cases diagnosed nationwide. And staying in New York, more than five decades after Diane Cusick's body was discovered in Long Island, New York, authorities have linked her death to the so-called Torso Killer. The suspect, Richard Cottingham, is believed to be one of America's most prolific serial killers. It wasn't until 2021, because of the advancements in DNA evidence, that we were able to retest some of the evidence that we had found in that 1968 uh, murder. And when we retested it, we came up with a DNA sample. When we uploaded it to the National Data Bank, we got a hit telling us that it was Richard Cottingham. Um, he is currently incarcerated in a prison in New Jersey. He was arraigned Wednesday on a second-degree murder charge in Cusick's 1968 killing in Nassau County. From a hospital bed in New Jersey, Cottingham pleaded not guilty. He's a violent predator, and no matter how he looks today in a hospital bed, um, he was not always a feeble um, older man. He was a young 22-year-old when he committed the murder of Miss Cusack and when he committed many other murders. Um, he was strong, stronger than these women were. Richard Cottingham has already serving a life sentence for other killings. While he was claimed he was responsible for up to 100 homicides, authorities have only officially linked him to a dozen so far. And also in New York, a federal court recently made a compelling First Amendment ruling rejecting a New York confidentiality law that protects attorney disciplinary records from being published. The court said the law violates the First Amendment when used to block individuals from posting their own complaints online. NTD's Arlene Richards breaks down the law. New York State Judiciary Law Section 90 says when a complaint is filed against an attorney for misconduct, all papers, records, and documents must remain sealed. A coalition of law professors filed 21 grievances against prosecutors working in the Queen's office and then posted them online. The New York City Law Department said in a letter to the State Grievance Committee that the law also applies to complaints. The Grievance Committee agreed and didn't investigate the complaints. Then the professors filed a lawsuit saying the Grievance Committee had retaliated. They argued the state used the law to violate their First Amendment right to post their own complaints online. The court said the city and state's high-ranking legal officers should have known the law professors could publish their own complaints. NTD reached out to the city and state attorneys but didn't hear back before airtime. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And in Texas, the Uvalde School District police chief has been placed on administrative leave by the district and could lose his position on the city council. He has come under criticism for the police response to the Uvalde school massacre. The police chief in Uvalde, Texas, who delayed as a mass shooter went on a rampage at Robb Elementary School, has been placed on administrative leave. 
19 children and two teachers were killed in the May 24th attack. Pete Arredondo, chief of police for the Uvalde School District, was in charge of the massive multi-agency police response. He's been criticized for how long it took, more than one hour, for police to launch an assault on the shooter. The director of the Texas Department of Public Safety called the delay, quote, a terrible decision. And on Wednesday, the school superintendent announced that Arredondo would be replaced by a lieutenant. Arredondo has defended his actions. He told the Texas Tribune that he did not consider himself incident commander at the scene and did not order police to hold back. His lawyer was quoted as saying that another of the local, state or federal agencies that arrived on scene should have taken over command. Arredondo also told the newspaper that it took officers more than an hour to find a key to unlock the door to the classroom where the shooter was. That's a different story to what the public safety chief told the Texas Senate hearing this week. Stephen McCross said not only was the door not locked, but there was also no evidence that officers had checked to see whether it was secured. And over in Florida, tomorrow marks one year since the partial collapse of the Champlain Towers South Building in Surfside. The accident killed 98 people. The cause of the collapse are still under investigation by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Many families say they have yet to get closure. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. 97 victims were killed outright when the building crumbled in the early hours of June 24, 2021, as residents slept. One victim died in the hospital. 26-year-old attorney Nicole Langsfield was one of the 98 that died. Her husband, Louis Sandovic, was also killed. Nicole's brother, Martin Langsfield, has been an advocate for justice and finding those who should be held accountable for overseeing the building code. Going back one year, we got a news notification from a media outlet saying that a building collapsed on Collins Avenue. It had no names, it had nothing, but my mother had a mother's instinct that something was wrong with her daughter. Alongside Martin was his father, Pablo Langsfield. Nicole was a light. She was our first child and we give everything. Everything to her. Every time she went into a room, she got a smile. She got a beautiful karma. She got friends everywhere. Her phone never stopped. She, she was a piece of art. She was beautiful. A year later, the family says they get the majority of their information from the media, and that's how they've found out about what is happening with the investigation. Martin Langsfield has been vocal to many outlets about getting more information to the families. Pablo Langsfield spoke about how his daughter was a successful lawyer and always sought justice. Since she was five, she wanted justice. She was five. She became a very good lawyer to seek justice, and this is what we want. They are honoring her by doing the same, seeking answers and justice, so another family doesn't have to go through the same ordeal. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A real tragedy. Well, if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up after the break, the would-be assassin of a Supreme Court justice has entered a plea of not guilty. He's being charged with attempted murder after being upset by the Roe versus Wade leak. And in college football, the top-ranked high school recruit in the country, quarterback Arch Manning, nephew to Peyton and Eli Manning, has made his decision. NTD's Dave Martin has the details. That and more coming up. A California man who attempted to murder a Supreme Court justice appeared in a Maryland federal court on Wednesday. He's accused of planning to assassinate Justice Brett Kavanaugh right outside his home. Californian Nicholas Rosk of Simi Valley pleaded not guilty of attempted murder in a Maryland federal court on Wednesday. Rosk had told investigators that he was upset over the leaked Supreme Court opinion that aims to overturn Roe v. Wade. He also stated he was upset about the Uvalde, Texas shooting. He is accused of traveling across the country with plans to kill United States Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Court documents state he was planning on taking his own life after the assassination. 
According to police, he had a shotgun, ammunition, zip ties, and tactical gear in his possession. His trial is scheduled for August 23rd, and he faces up to life in prison if convicted. Rosk will remain in jail until his trial. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And in California, police may soon no longer make arrests based on the charge of loitering for prostitution. Lawmakers sent a bill banning those types of arrests to the governor this week. Supporters say SB 357 is a win for transgender, black and Latino women, who they say are disproportionately targeted by police. But critics worry it will tie the hands of officers who are working to combat the crimes of buying sex and sex trafficking. I spoke with Dr. Stephanie Powell for more perspective on this bill. Powell is a former LAPD vice sergeant and is now director of law enforcement training and survivor services at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Let's hear from her now. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting us do this. Now, SB 357 would do away with loitering laws relating to prostitution. Supporters say that this would actually help minorities who they say are often unfairly targeted by police. But you've said that these laws would, this bill would actually harm minority communities which are already dealing with poverty and high crime rates. Could you explain a little more about that? Yes, absolutely. So I think uh, what the supporters failed to talk about is that when you look at the penal code that they want to repeal, 653.22, it also includes that law enforcement would not be able to stop anyone who is uh, a sex buyer that is trying to solicit others for the purposes of prostitution or for a trafficker that's trying to procure someone for the purposes of prostitution. And that's when you get into sex trafficking. And you've said before that often police officers use this law these loitering laws to initiate investigations into sex trafficking. So Yes, absolutely. So uh, that penal code 653.22 is often used as an investigative tool in order to find victims of sex trafficking, but also in order to arrest sex buyers as well. And so that's why it becomes a problem for the community because it does not enable law enforcement to investigate and do their work to keep the community safe. Your organization has advocated for policies that would further reduce prostitution and sex trafficking. Could you explain a little more about what some of those might be? So what our um, organization does is we are really focusing on the sex buyer. There needs to be uh, stronger legislation surrounding um, sex buying in order to um, keep people from doing that. Um, a lot of times police are focused more so on the prostituted as opposed to the sex buyer. Bottom line is it's against the law. And so as a result, um, we are encouraging law enforcement to focus more on the sex buyer than the prostituted. And that is a national conversation that is going on amongst law enforcement as well. This bill was passed in both chambers of the legislature back in September. But a lot has happened since then. And I, I think sentiment in California is changing a little. You know, San Francisco's DA, who's considered soft on crime, was recalled. Californians are starting to feel that the state doesn't feel as safe as it used to. Do you think this bill will have an effect possibly driving voters towards strong on crime legislators in the upcoming November election? I really believe that if uh, Californians really understood what passing this bill is going to mean, um, I think that they would uh, really be encouraging the governor to veto it because it can create crime. So if you could just imagine this, um, you know, all of us have seen what prostitution tracks look like. To make that legal would just uh, cause those uh, prostitution tracks to explode even more so. And now you will have sex trafficking being able to flourish under a legal umbrella of legalizing loitering for the purposes of prostitution. So you can imagine that. So if Californians really understood that, 
um, they would know that this too would be an addition to uh, making an unsafe environment for the communities. Dr. Stephanie Powell from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And staying in California, a group of drivers for Lyft and Uber held a rally in front of a Lyft office. They accused the companies of not taking enough action to compensate and protect their drivers. NTD's David Lamb reports. The safety and well-being of rideshare drivers has always been an issue, but there doesn't seem to be any concrete example to resolve the issue. Now on Thursday, some gig workers got together in Silicon Valley to demand more safety for their work. Members of the Gig Workers Rising group feel that there hasn't been a solid solution. The rally in front of Lyft's San Jose office was based on the group's report of casualties. So we put out a safety report in April detailing over 50 plus drivers being murdered on the job from uh, 2017 to now. Once the person is in your car, I mean, sometimes it's difficult to get rid of them. The person is drunk. I've had a friend of mine who told me that uh, he had a drunk uh, passenger in his car and he was so passed out, he didn't want to leave the car. He ended up calling the cops to get him uh, out of his car. So you never know, people have got their own problems. Uh, they, they take it on their Lyft or Uber drivers. On June 1st, several politicians signed a letter sent to five app-based delivery companies, Lyft, Uber, DoorDash, Instacart and Grubhub. They gave the CEOs of each company to June 22nd to respond to questions regarding safety measures. NTD reached out to the app companies. Lyft responded, saying, Since day one, we've built safety into every part of the Lyft experience. We are committed to doing everything we can to help protect drivers from crime. Lyft told NTD that they have a 24-7 safety team and law enforcement team and Lyft would reach out to the driver or their family in the case of a safety incident. That's why I'm here with you demanding gig safety now. Gig safety now. Gig safety now. The group is demanding things such as workers' compensation for employees hurt on the job, the right to unionize, and transparent data on injuries and deaths. Lyft said they will continue to take action and invest to make the service as safe as it can be. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And more in transportation, Elon Musk says his factories are losing billions of dollars because of low output. This is due to supply chain problems, especially in China. Entity's Faye Quarter has more. Gigantic money furnaces right now. Yeah. Okay, there should be like a giant roaring sound, which is the sound of money on fire. In a recent interview, Musk said Gigafactory Texas and Gigafactory Berlin are losing billions of dollars with a ton of expense and hardly any output. Trying to keep the factories operating the last couple of years has been a very difficult thing. Um, and like supply chain interruptions have been severe. Uh, like extremely severe. Musk says it'll take more effort to ramp up production than to build the factories in the first place. You're seeing the whole automotive industry getting squashed with a loss of somewhere around four and a half million cars just here in the U.S. and globally substantially more. Lauren Fix is an automotive expert at Car Coach Reports. Fix says China is a big part of this. We've transferred much of our assembly of these components, including batteries, to China. And now we're beholden to them. Musk says Giga Texas is currently making a puny number of cars because Tesla is struggling to ramp up production of its new 4680 batteries. He also said the tools needed to make the conventional 2170 batteries are stuck in China. The 4680 battery is Tesla's own self-made battery that offers more power, more energy capacity, and more range. The name refers to the battery's size, 46 millimeters wide and 80 millimeters tall. The 46 680 is very new, only announced two years ago. Most Tesla cars use 18650 and 2170 cells. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The NBA draft is tonight, and ESPN is reporting that the top three picks are increasingly firm, with Orlando likely taking Auburn freshman Jabari Smith Jr. first overall. The 6'10 freshman forward selection 
would then be followed by Oklahoma City drafting Gonzaga's Chet Holmgren and Houston picking Duke's Paolo Boncaro. This is the fourth time Orlando has had the top pick in the draft and they've done well with the previous three. The Magic selected future Hall of Famer Shaquille O'Neal number one in 1992. The next year they drafted another future Hall of Famer Chris Webber with the first pick but traded him that night for Penny Hardaway and three future first round picks. Finally in 2004 they took eight time All-Star Dwight Howard number one. The draft starts at 8 o'clock Eastern Time and all 58 selections will be made tonight. In college football news, Arch Manning, the top-ranked high school football player, according to both Rivals.com and ESPN, has committed to the University of Texas, thus ending one of the most intense recruiting battles in NCAA history. Manning, a quarterback, not only has put up tremendous numbers at Isidore Newman High School in New Orleans, but his pedigree as the nephew of former NFL quarterback greats Peyton and Eli Manning, grandson of Hall of Famer Archie Manning and son of former Ole Miss wide receiver Cooper Manning, has made him the most sought-after player in his class since middle school. Manning's recruitment featured the best programs in the country vying for his services, with Alabama, Georgia, and Clemson among his finalists. Manning will be a freshman in 2023. In NHL news, the Colorado Avalanche won Game 4 of the Stanley Cup Finals 3-2 in overtime last night, but not without some controversy. The game winner was scored by Colorado's Nazem Kadri, but after the game, Lightning coach John Cooper said, You're going to see what I mean when you see the game-winning goal, and my heart breaks for the players, because we probably should still be playing. At issue seemed to be a question of whether the Avalanche had too many players on the ice when Kadri caught a pass, skated away and scored on goalie Andre Vasilevsky. Specifically, Colorado's Nathan McKinnon may not have been close enough to the bench when his teammate entered the ice. Players have to be within five feet of the bench and out of the play before a substitution can be made. After the game, the NHL handed out score sheets to media that actually listed six players on the ice for the avalanche when Kadri scored his game winner, but then later edited it to five online. The infraction, though, is not reviewable. Game five is Friday night. And finally, an act of heroism in swimming. U.S. Olympic artistic swimmer Anita Alvarez fainted underwater yesterday during a national competition, but was saved when her head coach, Andrea Fuentes, who noticed her motionless body sinking to the bottom of the pool, jumped in and pulled her to the surface. The incident marked the second time Fuentes has had to save a fainting Alvarez during a competition. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, are the Confucius Institutes in the U.S. truly closed? A report says some of them are back, but under new names. And the second day of union strikes this week crippled rail networks in London following demands to increase workers' wages. Could there be more to the strikes than jobs and pay? NTD's Malcolm Hudson will have more for us after the break. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What did today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. China's Confucius Institutes have been shutting down across the U.S. That's amid concerns that Beijing uses them to infiltrate and influence America's colleges and universities. But is China giving up on them so easily? NTD's Tiffany Meyer takes a closer look. A new report by the National Association of Scholars found that Confucius Institutes have continued under new names. Dozens of American institutions have maintained their relationships with a Chinese Communist Party affiliate by opening up similar programs. The report says after shutting down Confucius Institutes, at least 28 universities replaced them with new, similar programs. Georgia State University from Atlanta is one of them. 
The staff running the new program are the same as those who ran the now-closed Confucius Institute. They came from a university in Beijing, the former Confucius program partner to Georgia State. The two signed an agreement the same month the Confucius Institute closed. In Virginia, the College of William and Mary also replaced its Confucius Institute with a new program. It, too, runs the program with its former Confucius Institute partner, a Chinese university called Beijing Normal University. The two signed an agreement establishing the new program a day after closing the Confucius Institute. Along the same vein, Western Michigan University and its former Confucius Institute partner signed a deal on a new program one day after shutting down the Confucius Institute. The former partner will send Chinese teachers to support the new program. And over in the UK, train strikes continue as rail company bosses and union leaders face off over demands to increase workers' pay to keep up with inflation. And more industrial action could be coming in the months ahead. But beyond the issue of wages, could there be other influences spurring these movements? NTD's Malcolm Hudson investigates. Strikes continue to cripple the rail network, impacting passengers, commuters and businesses across the country. Although negotiations between rail bosses and unions are ongoing, a third day of strikes is planned for Saturday. Other industries are also moving towards industrial action in what unions say could become a summer of discontent. Mick Lynch, the General Secretary of the RMT Union, spoke to BBC Breakfast on Thursday about the union's plans once everyone is back to work next week. We'll consult our members, we'll see where the negotiations lie, we'll continue to talk to the companies about everything that's been put on the table and we'll review that and see if, there, if and when there needs to be a new phase of industrial action. But if we don't get a settlement, it's extremely likely that there will be. The RMT has said it has a mandate for six months of strikes, taking strikes through to Christmas. Enterprises NTD has spoken to have said offices are empty, employees are not coming into work and that the strikes have severely impacted them. One business owner said that during previous strikes there was no way for him to get to meetings at one of his branches. You see, I think it's just the rail network that gets crippled when this happens. It's not. Everything goes down. London just stops. This, this place should be filled with people at a minute, and there's nobody. This is a, in, for normal London, this is a ghost town, which means no one's doing any business today. It's undoubted that the strikes are having a serious impact on the economy, but could there be more to the strikes than the talking points of jobs and pay? It's worth looking at the president of the RMT union, a man named Alex Gordon. He is also a leading member of the Communist Party of Britain. He's in the executive committee. Gordon is also a chair of the Marx Memorial Library and has both written in their publications and organised their events. In the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels wrote that the unions can be used for strikes and revolts to accelerate the class struggle. They wrote that unions need to centralise the numerous local struggles into one national struggle between classes and that every class struggle is a political struggle. Their end goal, of course, was to take down the capitalist economic system. I went to the Cost of Living protest march here in London last weekend and picked up a leaflet from a group called Revolutionary Socialism in the 21st Century. It says, to tackle the cost of living crisis, we need a stronger and more radical working class movement in every workplace and community. And on the other side, we could also see big strikes by postal and telecommunications workers in the next few months. In fact, over 150,000 Royal Mail staff are set to vote on a possible walkout. Teachers' unions are also threatening industrial action. All of these potential future strikes don't bode well for the stability of normal life. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. Something to keep an eye on. Well, coming up, a dog cafe where your four-legged friend can be off-leash while you enjoy a cup of coffee. The owners say it's the first of its kind in New York City. Stay tuned for more when we come back. You might have heard of cat cafes, but have you ever been to a dog cafe? A newly opened cafe in New York provides an off-leash area for dogs to play while owners grab a cup of coffee and work. Let's take a look. Recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic, people are coming back to New York City, and so are dogs. 
Christina Hanford is a regular customer to the newly opened Black Lab Cafe NYC. Well, I just moved back to the city um, after COVID and uh, was looking for, now that I work remote, I was looking for a spot that I could take my dog and work at the same time. Most of the time that means, you know, sitting outside, getting a coffee, so he has to sit on his leash the whole time. We've gone to other cafes before where he'll just sit on the ground outside and kind of just lay there. But here he gets stimulated, he gets exercise, he meets other dogs. I can get him dog treats while I'm working. Um, he gets a water bowl, you know, he gets, he gets a lot of perks as well. So he's not just bored and waiting for me to be done with work. <laughs> Ava Zwolinski, who lives close to the cafe, agrees. I can walk here um, and it's nice to get work done with Archie here because otherwise he's at home and uh, bored and he'll be energetic at the end of the day. So now he gets all of that energy out. <laughs> This dog cafe is a brainchild of two brothers, Nicholas and Christopher Powers. They first started a fresh and natural dog food business in 2020 for their dog, Daisy. They also wanted to open a cafe to sell the products sooner, but due to the pandemic, they weren't able to open the place until April this year. But the business came with some challenges. New York City's health department has guidelines that say if a business that allows pets is right next to a restaurant or other food service establishment, the two locations must be completely separated by floor to ceiling walls and each location must have its own street entrance and separate address. To follow these guidelines, Nicholas explained what he had to do. Well, so as you can see, there's a whole wall here. We made a glass so that dogs can see their, their parents or owners, however you like to call it, while they're in getting food, but uh, so that this area is completely separate so that uh, no dogs can go where we're serving food and drinks. According to Christopher, New York City has other dog-friendly cafes, but the biggest difference between dog cafe and dog-friendly cafe is on leash or no leash. There are a lot of places that are dog-friendly, but they're dog-friendly in the sense that you can bring your dog, but your dog still must be on leash. Here, your dog can be off leash playing with other dogs. Andrew Cohen is a first time customer who just came here for coffee, but says that the dogs were a welcome surprise. I feel like dogs are a great way of like relieving some anxieties and also relieving some like stress from people's day. Very sweet and great to see New York City coming back to life too. Well, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.